And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And Farhan, we are live. After a very interesting Canucks game, I thought. Yeah. Probably probably the funniest possible outcome, right? Like, they lay an egg. They lay an egg overall, right? They, they play well in the third, but they lay an egg. That was the game they should not have won, where no matter what your take on this team is, right, whether they need to play more structured, whether they're fine and they just need to up their effort level, like, there was something for everything, everyone. To glom onto and, and claim victory, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this was a complete flip the script for Vancouver's entire season, or at least their first five game road trip to begin the season. I mean, it, for two periods, I sent you a text in the center second intermission, basically saying these guys are awful. Like they're like in, in the words of Thomas Drench, they're fundamentally awful. Late in the second period, uh, right before they tied it. And you, what, what are we doing here? Like, this game is tied, and you had the maniacal laugh on text. Like, I can tell you were maniacally laughing, <laughs> saying, they're still going to win this game. They're still going to win. I, I was maniacally laughing the whole night. I, I showed up at the rink, and there were two things that I was confident about. One, that it would be a ridiculous outcome one way or the other, right? I felt, I felt like it was going to be an extreme result one way or the other. That was sort of my view, was that after the Fuhrer that had surrounded this team over the past 28 hours, that one way or another, the result would be extreme. It was either going to be a vicious loss or a a big win. And instead, I got a little bit of both. I got 30 minutes in which the team looked absolutely dismal, right? Completely discombobulated, disorganized, flummoxed. Outshot 30 to 10, scoring chances you know, the, the scoring chance edge was was even more dramatic. Canucks had absolutely nothing going offensively in the first half of the game, except that Bo Horvat deflected one in. And then in the second half, 
all of a sudden this Canucks forecheck started to play. And, you know, there was a moment where it was Tanner Pearson, JT Miller, and Brock Besser. They broke through <coughs> the Senators' <coughs> neutral zone forecheck. Excuse me. You're going to be okay? Yeah. They, Speaking of which, or go ahead. <coughs> they broke through the... Tanner Pearson played his best game. Oh, for sure. Tonight. For sure. Well, so they break through the Senators' neutral zone forecheck, and Pearson tries to set up Besser, and Besser kind of whiffs on the shot. And it was at that moment where I was like, okay, they figured out the timing. That was the first time they've generated anything on the rush, even though it wasn't a chance. It was a chance at a chance, and that to me represented progress. From that point on, I thought, boy, the Senators really have not made this count. They really have not made their absolute abject dominance of the Canucks hold up here. And as such, you know, I think they're I think they're playing with fire. Moments later, five minutes later, really, Brock Besser ties it up. And in the third period, the Canucks actually outplayed them. The Canucks played uh, better hockey and, and had that signature moment for me, which was that Jackson Nika goal, where all of a sudden the Bruce Boudreaux style manifested itself successfully for maybe the first time all year. And so we come out of it, out of this with... And the style was what? Sending two guys in deep and getting a break because of bad goaltending? Yeah. Well, creating creating your own luck on the pressure applied on the opponent. Like, that's Bruce Boudreaux's big idea. Bruce Boudreaux is a hedgehog, right? There's hedgehogs and foxes, right? A hedgehog knows one thing and is a master of that one thing. And a fox knows lots of things a little bit. And Bruce Boudreaux is a hedgehog coach. He knows one thing really well, and it is he will get better two-way results if his teams play aggressively. And this team has not played aggressively successfully all season. I don't know if it's fitness. I don't know what precisely is going on. But after doing it pretty well during the uh, 2021-22 campaign, it's been absent. Like the, It's just even the games they've won, they haven't won aggressively. In my view, you know, we saw flashes of how it can look against Nashville. But tonight in the third period, or certainly the second half of the game, I felt like Boudreaux's big idea played. And so we come out of this with, you know, Bo Horvat admitting in the locker room, yeah, that one felt sweet. And Bruce Boudreaux saying, I knew the guys would respond. No one likes to have anything negative said about them. <laughs> so a, a declaration of, of victory, a sweet one for the team. And yet, if you look at the overall process, I don't know that anyone provided much grounds to dispute Jim Rutherford's formulation about where this team is at and where they're likely to go next. You play that game 10 times, you're losing at 8 of 10. It's just that the 20% came up, right? <laughs> the the coin got flipped and it came up Spencer Martin tonight for the Canucks with maybe a dash of Bo Horvat. Yeah, Spencer was was interesting in this game because, look, he kept them in it, especially in the first period. The fact that it was as close as it was, and I'm sure Canuck fans were sour because Vancouver scores the, Hor- the Horvats first to tie it at one, and then, like, seconds later, Hamannick makes it two to one on a bad goal, right? Like, Martin's got to stop that goal. You know, you, Joshua loses the battle on the wall. Puck makes its way across the ice, and it, like, there's, you can see it. It's clear, no deflection. You got to save it, period. End of story. And, but if it wasn't for him, it's probably 4 1 in the first period. And, the, you know, the Giroux goal was kind of meh, right? Like, I thought that one that one could have been saved, but, like, hard to quibble with just how well he played because in those first two periods, the Canucks were owned on every level, absolutely owned. And once again, the guy, the guy gets a result. 
And you could make the case that, you know, maybe he got some bounces as well that, that um, Thatcher Demko doesn't seem to get, or maybe he got, he gets goal support that Thatcher Demko doesn't seem to get. Although I think the Canucks offense has been good, even when Demko has been in goal. Um, it's just it's something about it. Right. And now you've got back to back, back to back. So, you, you I, know, we expect I'm to see Demko really tomorrow. Worried. We're expecting to see Demko really tomorrow against the Habs. The Canucks. Oh yeah, we will. And then they've got back to back coming up right after that. And they're going to. And I would expect to see Martin. I bet you we see Martin in Toronto and Demko in Boston. Tell me why. Because they both have ties to those communities, right? Like Martin's a Toronto guy. uh, Demko has a ton of friends and went to college in Boston. Easy. Easy decision. Yeah, fair enough. And that, that kind of stuff plays well with Bruce as well. And then if they do that, they can also give each goalie an extra day's rest, right? Yeah, I mean, for Spencer Martin, considering how weird his path to the NHL has been, how long he had to wait to get another shot after uh, the his abs tenure, the fact that, you know, he plays three NHL games, doesn't win one, plays two really well for the Canucks, and they lose in, in extra time before he finally gets his first NHL win in his sixth game. Uh, the way that he went to Curtis Sanford and advocated, like, was like, teach me. Teach me what you guys are doing. It's amazing. I know I'm the fifth guy. Please just spend time on me. And they agreed to do it. And now Martin's done this for the Canucks. He's from Oakville. He'd have a million people there. I mean, if Spencer Martin doesn't start in Toronto, what are we even doing? Like that is (laughs) starting Spencer Martin starting on hockey night, you know, is a feel good story. Like I want that for him. You know, wow, come on, look, the last, last year, like, Demko was ridiculous on hockey night, on Saturday night, That's in true. Toronto. Demko, Demko with, like, owns, Demko was, he owns the Leafs. He does. Now, look, we got, we've got so much to talk about in this edition of the live room, right? I mean, we've got, we, we still have so much of the game to dive into, uh, for, you know, on holes and getting back in, and JT Miller going back to center, and Jack Rathbone getting in the lineup. We're going to dissect all of that. The reaction and how much of this in the third period had to do with what Jim Rutherford said last night. You know, are we just killing time here? Like the the first two periods of this game, the way the Canucks were looking, even though the score didn't reflect it, but certainly the run of play and anybody who was watching with an objective eye would tell you, like those are the types of games that get coaches fired. On the heels of what this team had done for the first 12 games of the season and Jim Rutherford's comments yesterday, like, if the Canucks would have continued their play in the first two periods into the third, I, like, honestly, I like you wouldn't have shocked me if two days from now we would have been having a coach's press conference. Like, it was that bad of a performance coming off of comments that were so over the top by Jim Rutherford. And so we, we're going to get into all of that. But, um, well, well you know, first, let's, first let's start sorry, with, let me, let me, I want to squirrel this a little bit. Um I'm watching election returns on mute, obviously, while we talk. And I'm thinking to myself that really election returns are one thing that's best watched on the West Coast. (laughs) And I wanted to let you know, one of the best things about coming out on this East Coast trip is I get 7 and 10 p.m. starts in the sports leagues. Uh, You're the only guy that likes that. So I found someone else who does. And I don't want to... I don't want to ruin the reputation of a fan favorite Canucks player, but I was having a chat with none other than Luke Shen, 
in the locker room. And he was like, well, what are you going to get up to tonight? And I was like, oh, I'm so excited to watch sports in the East, uh, Eastern time zone. I get to finish my day and then go out and belly up at a bar and watch four games at once. I love it. And he was like, oh, man, me too. Like, in the, I, I can't watch games at four. By the time I put my kids to bed, all the games are over. And I was like, thank you. Someone who gets it. Someone exactly. Who it. Someone who gets Luke, it. Yeah, gotcha. Luke Shen. Luke Shen, the smartest guy in the room. All right, you say so. Just look. No matter what you <laughs> tell me about the the Mariners and Blue Jays and this and that, like you, you know, you are such the minority on this living in Vancouver. You know this. You are such the minority. You, no, but you it's, can't only even begin it's only because it's only it's no, I can. It's so obvious. No, it's you just can't. West, West Coast, West Coast folks. Ten a.m. Tunnel vision. Ten a.m. NFL games and yeah, having a game end before like one a.m. Who wants the games to end at no, one a.m.? No time for brunch. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, eat, eat anyway. while I'm watching. All right, back to <laughs> anyway. Um. So yeah, I mean, you're right. This was just a brutal Canucks performance for 30 minutes. And then it was a wonderful one. And, you know, I loved that it was Horvat leading the charge with the two goals and the, and the go-ahead goal. Uh, you know, if there's one guy who's had to block out more noise than anybody else, <laughs> I mean, think about it. He's, he's wearing the C. He's the guy who's taking it personally when, when people are slamming the team's culture. He's the guy who's unsigned. He's contract year Bo Horvat on, abs- on, on absolute fuego. On pace for 70-plus goals. I don't think he gets there, but my goodness. And, you know, he's also the guy who has to talk after all of the commentary, all of the dysfunction. Whenever it surfaces, like, who do you want to talk to? We want to talk to Bo. We need to talk. Bo has to be the front man. And he's the guy this organization didn't sign, right? They signed the other guy. Uh, They signed JT. And Bo's out there unsigned. And he's just on this absolutely ridiculous heater. The Nets never looked so big to him. It's incredible to watch. I thought it was fitting that he played that well. I thought it was fitting that Spencer Martin performed the way he did. And the Canucks claw their way back to it. They steal this game. They absolutely steal this game. And I just can't get over the dichotomy. This is the perfect result to fuel whatever argument you want to have. Right. It is it is it's Schrodinger, uh, Schrodinger's result. Right. Like, is the game won if you play like that? I don't know. I don't know. You can argue it however you want. Slice it however you want. I think that's just fabulous. Well, if you know, like I said, it, this was the, the kind of the world tipped upside down Canuck game. And people will point to the fact that, look, it's Ottawa. And for them, what is this now? Five losses in a row. Uh, after they looked pretty good at the start of uh, at the start of the season coming out of the gate, and you know we we they've got work to do. They didn't get the goaltending performance that uh, that certainly that Vancouver got in this game as well. Um, but uh, you know let's let's stay with the captain for a bit because you touched on that. And you know how much do you think he took the comments personally? Because I know you talked to him this morning, and he felt pretty much opposite to Jim Rutherford that he felt pretty good with this team structure coming out of training camp. He. He defended. He didn't defend Bruce by name, but just kind of the overall, um, you know, the overall uh, process that the team was following. And and when I looked at Jim Rutherford's comments yesterday, it was about Bruce. It was not about the players. So and then Bruce turns around and says, yeah, if I'm the players, I'd have pride and I wouldn't want to be criticized. Well, they weren't being criticized. So how do you think the players specifically responded 
to all of that? Do you think it mattered to them? Was it a reflection of, hey, we're being criticized or further cementing Bruce's status as a lame duck coach? Well, I don't think they reacted to it well, right? I mean, it's not like they came out and played well. You'd have to say, right? You'd have to say it's not as if they <laughs> excelled <laughs> over the course of 60 minutes, right? They responded well in the third. Uh, they gave they gave Bruce one good period, and that's enough for him to stand on, and he did, right? He said, I had no doubt in the character in that room. They came out, they played for me. And Bruce is right now clearly just trying to install whatever belief. His only shot, his only shot is to go on a run. His only shot is the big idea. The, the idea that this team can win big enough to make him unassailable. Well, probably not unassailable in Vancouver, based on all the public commentary, right? But mm-hmm. unassailable in terms of the next job. In, unassailable in terms of his standing in the league. Uh, you know, not debatable. And so he goes to a lineup that's like the same lineup that he rolled out the very first day of training camp before the injuries started piling up over the course of camp, right? And mm-hmm. what's that message? That message is, forget the first 12 games. Forget Nashville. This is who we are. We're this team. We're not that team. That team, we haven't had our full guys. We haven't had all our guys. This team, we've got all our guys. We start again tonight. Let's go get it. That's the message. That's the message. And then after the game, no one wants to hear anything negative about, about themselves. You know, we came out. I had no doubt about the character in that room. I knew they'd go get it in the third, and they did. And, you know, he's earned it. He gets to stunt. He won the game. But I also think... The argument that Jim Rutherford made, if you're a fan watching that critically, and we've got Alistair watching it critically, and he says, this team is broken. They got to start over. Love all the guys, but they just have to. Mediocrity has been the norm for too long. And if you're watching that game, you have plenty of grounds to come away feeling that way. Don't you think? Like there was oh, a, ton, a ton of poor performances. And yet... Yeah. Especially defensively. I thought that I thought that was maybe the team's worst defensive effort of the year. Yeah, I mean, the first two periods, I don't know how anybody could potentially deny that. I mean, they, they were, even at the end, right? I mean, you've got a minute to go right before the empty net goal, and Tyler Myers just throws the puck up the middle of the ice. And fortunately, didn't wind up in the back of their net, and they were able to eventually exit. And But, like, throughout this game, yeah, I mean, when you look at um, – just look at Oliver Ekman Larson on, on that early goal where he just, you know, completely gets beat to the icing call when he's got position to start with. Oh, um, I mean, you know, the, like, the, the Canucks got so lucky that all of the Senators stretch past breakaway opportunities, a lot of them coming against that OEL Myers line, um, got stopped, right? Like time and time again, it was the Senators on a two-on-one or with an empty net, uh, off the rush. I mean, the amount of rush chances that the senators didn't convert was dizzying right that's the whole result of the game like the result there is basically the senators didn't capitalize on the rush they did not take their chances that explains so much of the outcome tonight and that's scary because more often than not an nhl team is going to take enough of those chances to bury yeah no i mean there's no doubt and there, there was so much of it whether it was uh, the goal that actually tied, or sorry, that gave the Sens a lead at the end of the period. Uh, you know, Kuzmenko kind of caught drifting in no man's land. Like, there were just so many of those moments. Uh, and even just not on the goals. Uh, to your point, on off-the-rush chances and plays that should have been goals, 
right? They had given up, I think they were, they had given up three two-on-ones in the first like eight minutes of the game, right? It was, it was ridiculous just how loose and sloppy they were. They came up with a better third period. And like you said, the Sens didn't take advantage. And, and here we are talking about this, you know, this gutty team that found a way to win the game, <laughs> get their coaches back. And, oh, you know, so good. Like, oh. Connor Garland, Connor Garland used the word loose. In describing the team, so I asked him basically, like, you know, what did you think of the first half versus the second half? And he used the word loose and then quickly caught himself and kind of walked it back, stunted on himself a little bit uh, to make sure that he hadn't echoed it. And, and then, of Carter course, Garland then, played great today. Of all, he did. Like, of all the guys that kind of needed to make a statement for whatever reason, I thought Connor Garland was very good tonight. What do you think of Connor, JT Miller at center? Uh, I'll finish up on Garland first, but what do you think of Connor, JT in the middle tonight? Connor Garland is very good. And I think the proper slotting for him is as, like, the thing about Garland is he's a really skilled playmaker, and he's a pretty good play driver, but I like him best in the in the bottom six. Like, I love him as, you know, I don't want to say a poor man's version of this, but like a, like a you know, a 75% or 80% version of what we think of Kessel being on the Pittsburgh Penguins when they won those back-to-back cups, right? Like, like that third line X factor guy who you just know in limited minutes is going to outwork everybody and have some game breaking potential. Like that's, that's who I think he is. So when, when you slot him appropriately in that spot, I just think you're going to get returns from it. You know, now JT Miller at center. I didn't love it. (laughs) I didn't love it. I thought, I mean, look, I think the team is, so much worse defensively when JT Miller's there versus when he's on the wing. And the reason is, is that I think when you have a first line center, who's not a a defensive driver and remove a player, like the thing about, you know how every baseball player is a shortstop until they make it to the big leagues. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone thinks they have that range and can make those plays and then you get there. Yeah. Yeah, when 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 JT Miller's on the wing, his defensive results are sterling. Like he's a really good he I mean, you know, he still has some puck management things whatever as you want to say. He's like a really good defensive winger. Like a top end defense top end two-way winger. But at his, at at center, he's sort of um, you know, I don't want to use a word as strong or as harsh as liability, but he's not a defensive impact player as a center. Uh he was he's, a, li- he's, he's a liability like, as a center defensively. Come on. Own it. Yeah, I'm gonna. I want to be kinder than that. I want to be kinder than that. I, not not because not because it's totally unfair, but because you know I I do think it's a little far. You know he he should if he was your third line center, I think you'd be okay. It's when he's a first line center that I that I think it the seams begin to show a bit. So you know is that below average? Uh, something like that. It's it's you know liability to me implies like really can't do it. And I think JT Miller can play center. I just like him as a supporting center, not as a first-line matchup center. And when you look at all the chances that the Ottawa top six generated over the course of the evening, and when you look at how little the Canucks generated five-on-five, like one thing to note is the Canucks scored a lot, but I mean, they get a deflection goal from Horvat. They get a deflection goal from Besser. You, you credit them for, the, for being in those spots, for battling to get there. But you also have to note, right, that... Those goals aren't coming every night. Those are, you know, bounces to some extent. Uh, the Canucks really didn't generate a lot. 
Um, I mean, even in the third, even in the third, right? I mean, when you look at the high danger scoring chances in this game, it was 11 to five in favor of the Sens in the first two periods. It was only five, four for the connection of the third period. So, um, you know, yeah, like you're right. I, it, uh, I, I really don't think, I really don't think we should look at the Canucks goal totals and just assume that this offense is fine. I don't think they're generating enough. I think that's a real problem for them. And I think over the stretch, what we're going to see is this team play a lot more low scoring games. I think we're going to see things. Yeah, I think we're going to see this team start to uh, get better goaltending, which will keep the goals against down. And I think we're going to see this club struggle to score. And, and you know, my sort of concern is that it, it, what's going to break this team is like a run of 3-1, 2 losses because I, I don't see them generating enough five on five. Uh, so their power play can be the the X factor in those games, um, you know, but their penalty kill could be too. <laughs> I just I just think some of what we've seen from Vancouver in, on the goal scoring front um, is unsustainable. I I just don't see the sort uh, sorts of heavy shifts and like the dizzying barrage of chances that's typical of a team that's scoring the way the Canucks are. Couple of players I want to get into. And at first, we should also remind our uh, listeners that hey, if you want to weigh in. You can get into our stage queue as well. Just try to um, try to connect with us there. If you do want to have your say, we will take uh, some of our listeners um, to hear what they have to say a little bit later on in this episode of the live room. Vasily Pod Colson. So you know, plus two I, on the uh, plus two on the pedestrian he, stats. Is of course he was sitting at uh, just under forty one. I thought he looked penalty. like a shell. I thought he looked like a shell of himself. Yeah, I, th- I thought my, the one word that stands out to me is tentative when I watched him play. He looked yep. like a player just afraid to make a mistake coming off a healthy scratch. Yeah, I mean, what, what? how else would you expect him to look? Well, come on. I mean, a lot of guys would just say, okay, no, I'm going to just, you know, put my foot in the ground and I'm just going to go play. I put, put your foot in the ground and be a football term. But that they were going to just, I'm going to show you. Like, if you look at Nils Hoaglander in his last game coming off the scratch, he played really, really well. It was yeah, but extremely we know, noticeable. But we know that Pod Colson is a thinker, for better and for worse, Right. This is okay. a guy who's really thoughtful about his game, who works really hard. Some of the hardest, some of the, one one reason that I believe so strongly in Pod Colson is everything I hear about him, absolute rink rat, you know, top line fitness scores, works on his skating in the summer, works all the time, wants to be a great player and puts in the work, backs it up in terms of the effort that he puts in. And yet... You know, you've heard from Boudreaux occasionally, and I think you can see it, that sometimes he gets too down on himself. I think he's got, Petey can be like this too. The guys who are thinkers, who see the game at a really high level and work really hard and are thoughtful about their game, especially when they're younger, they can get down on themselves because they see the opportunities they're missing. They see the mistakes they're making. They understand and are processing them at a different rate than, than some other players. And you yeah, know, I but think the, honestly, Drancer, seriously, like you look at, yeah, sure, they get down, but JT Miller gets frustrated and flustered when he spills the puck in his own end and it ends up in the back of his net. And Brock Besser gets down on himself when he's not scoring goals and admits that it affects all ends of his game. This team is full of that. Oh yeah, like, well, they might this not be down in maybe different forms of emotion that affect their play and allows it to compound, but <laughs> yeah. not have a lot of guys that necessarily grind through that mentally. No, this team, this team is the opposite of this, of, of a golden mean team, right? The, if the twins were like a golden mean sort of, um, 
incarnate, personified, right? Never get too high, never get too low, always sort of centered, right? This team's the opposite. When things snowball well for them, like the moment they took the lead, you kind of, you kind of have a sense that they're going to add one, right? And then the moment things start going badly for them, you kind of get the sense that there's a chance that they're going to surrender the lead, that, that they're going to allow the comeback, right? I thought I thought that, you know, one one thing I liked about the game is they give up the two goal lead twice and still close it out. Yeah, no, they they showed that they haven't showed that a lot, and you you often wonder in this game, given listening to the commentary coming out of Ottawa, right? Even my friend AJ Jackiebeck talked about you know the first two periods, but then folding in the third. Boy, it sure felt like a Canuck commentary, right? So you almost wonder how much of it was Ottawa. Um, living up to form versus the Canucks. Do you know what I mean? I, I do. I, and I think the, I think the thing we're seeing with Ottawa is, is very different. This is a team snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, outplaying teams and then finding ways to lose, right? The Canucks are a, a bit of a different matter in my view, because when they're at least some of the time when they're winning, certainly tonight, you know, <laughs> I mean, how many games of the 13 they've played have they been the better team? I'll give you Pittsburgh. I'll give you tonight. I'll give you Philadelphia. Yeah, there were, you know what? I think there were a couple of games. Yeah, Philly. There was maybe one more in the sorry, first one. I, 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 I thought sorry, they were better I over, four, over 40 minutes. I just think I just think Philly. I Philly, Pittsburgh, and, and I think I'd give them Nashville. Like, I like yeah, their okay. game against Nashville. So, so that's – oh, and Pittsburgh, so Pittsburgh, Philly – Nashville. That's it. For me, that's it. Three of 13, where I'd say, hey, the Canucks deserve to win that night on form. I mean, yeah, I, I, didn't mind that their, I didn't mind their first two periods against Mini, but uh, uh, anyway, look, I'm not going to quibble over, over one game at this point, given what we've seen, for sure. Yeah, well, so, but either way, I mean, <laughs> excuse me, whether it's four of 13 or three of 13, you know, <laughs> this team's found ways to perform maybe better than their form would indicate. They, they might have outperformed how they've actually played to this point, which, again, I, I, I suspect would uh, be an argument that, that's very much uh, in the Rutherfordian camp. But, you know, at some point, if you play like this with any consistency, you're not winning games very often. No, you're not. Uh, a couple other players I wanted to get into. How about Jack Rathbone? Um, you know, he got the assist on the goal, but ultimately it was a D to D pass. I gave him some love on Twitter just because I want to see him in the lineup more, but I know it wasn't a special play. Uh, overall, I mean, in terms of uh, scoring chances and the ability, you know, shot control, it was, it was definitely against him tonight, uh, right around 13 minutes of action. What'd you make of his performance? S- sorry, who? Excuse Jack me. Jack Rathbone. Oh, my uh, favorite defenseman. He he was fine. I, I mean, that's I, it? I don't. That's know. all I'm going to get out of you is a fine. Yeah, I, I I don't think he was great. I thought I think he was fine. I don't think anyone was great from the Canucks. No, side, they weren't. To be totally but honest, we, did Bo, he do enough? Did he, did he do enough to stay in the lineup tomorrow? Because we're not expecting Dermot back uh, immediately. I mean, I think you've got to get. Kyle Burroughs in the lineup, considering how many chances he gave up tonight. He's, he, you know, other than Luke Shen, he's been your best defensive defenseman this season. He can play the, the left side. side. Yeah. He can play the left side. And, you know, you, you can't look at that game 
and and think that that team had enough defensive spine. They didn't. They just didn't. Period. Uh, so whatever you need to do to, to add some goal prevention, chance prevention into your lineup, you do it. Uh, Burrow's your best chance at it. That's my view, but I don't want to see Jack Rathbone yo-yo in and out either. Sort of one of this one of this team's issues. Like I think you get if you want if the goal is just grind out the two points, you got to put Kyle Burrows. On the other hand, I think you got to play Jack Rathbone because at some point he's 24, and and you got to give him a run of like 15 games to tell you what he is. He's only played 21 NHL games in three years since turning pro for a team that hasn't made the playoffs in any of those years. At some point, you gotta you gotta find out what you have. Yeah, I can't disagree with you. I mean, like I've I've been wanting him to play, and I'm wanting him to get a run of games because he just deserves it at this point, right? Like. You know, he's not getting better just sitting and, and people criticize, you know, you know, that he hasn't shown enough in those games, but he barely gets any time in so in those games and he certainly doesn't feel comfortable at all. I would love to see him just get three to four games in a row and try to get into a little bit of a groove. I'm with you. I, you know, and I haven't been very impressed with him this season, but I, I thought he was fine tonight. So I, I'd leave him in. I'd give him some run. The time has come. You need to find out what you have in Jack Rathbone. It's only a matter of time before injuries are going to get Kyle Burroughs in the lineup anyway. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, should, we, should we open the queue and do, uh, yeah, and do some questions? We only have two yep. hands up right now, but please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. And, uh, and we'll get to you if, you if so long as your hand's up by about 11.10. We'll take you in the order in which you appear in the queue and uh, and let you guide your guide the conversation. So feel free to ask us anything and uh, and please put your hand up and join us right now, though. We'll invite Chet B up to the stage. I hope. Oh, there we go. Chet, how are you? All righty. How's it going? Going well. All right. Uh, First of all. I'm 41. I've followed hockey quite a bit. I don't think I've ever seen a situation where the remainder of the contract on a coach with one year left was the thing that was like preventing him from being fired. And uh, like, I just find it weird that like the Canucks organization be considered so cheap. Uh, like I know there's been a lot of stuff with Aquilini in the last year with like the COVID shortened season and other things you reported on where like there's a bunch of cuts, but like to actually block your 
uh, president from firing a coach over the remainder of his pay. Seems kind of bizarre. Uh, yeah. The other thing, yeah. I was, the other thing I was going to touch on was uh, uh, I find it also kind of weird that people say it's a young man's league, but the thought of going young immediately throws them into fits. And uh, <laughs> like I, I, you mentioned the uh, the Devils getting defensemen over the last couple of years. I, I went a little further and took another look, and uh, it's really weird how they're a twisted reflection of the Canucks mm. because they went to the Stanley Cup final in 2012. They had this aging core, and then in 2017-18, the year that we get Pedersen, they get Nico Heischer, and then they make the playoffs, and we fire Linden, and they just lean into the rebuild further, and now look how good they are. Anyway, that's what I got. Chet, thank you so much. A lot to unpack there. Um, so, okay, let's start with the the coaching situation. I don't know how much the three contracts thing plays a role necessarily in the Boudreaux situation, but we know that Boudreaux hired previous to this management group coming in has this year remaining on his deal. And we know that Travis Green remains on the books. Uh, Dolly Wall, I saw reported today that he thought Green's status would impact Boudreaux. Uh, I find that compelling, but I don't know it for sure. Um, I suspect that part of the logic here is that you might as well see for a couple more weeks, if you're management, exactly which way this trends, right? Either Boudreaux gets it back on track and this season unfolds closer to what the club was hoping for, where where you're at least a playoff bubble team. Or things go into the tank, in which case, why change coaches and repeat the script of last season where you risk a new guy coming in and energizing the, the troops and going on one of those dead cat bounce runs to stir your draft position, right? I, I mean, I reported on Monday, and I believe this uh, because I know it to be true. I think if this season continues to trend poorly for everybody or for this team, that management would be inclined to lean into that skit and make sure that they, you know, get some benefit from their pain by being, if not, you know, in the Bedard mix necessarily, at least close enough to get one of the impact, the seven or eight impact guys in the 2023 draft class. So, uh, you know, I suspect that logic looms large here, too. That said, it is convenient if that's the sort of take, considering the budgetary considerations as well. Farhan, what do you yeah. have to add? Well, like, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with it, right? Because if you wind up elevating Mike Yo from within, that's not going to cost you a significant amount of money at this point in the season, right? Like, you're paying Boudreaux to coach or not to coach. That money's being paid. So, I like... I can't imagine that, like, I, do I think they're going to go outside and try to hire Barry Trotz or something? No, I don't. It'll be doing something from within, number one. Um, are they at the point where they don't want the dead cat bounce? I'm not sure I'm buying that yet either. Like, I, I think they're for another, you know, like, it's not Jim Benning day to day, but I think that they still are hopeful that there is a bit of a turnaround right now. I don't think that right now they're at the point where, even though Rutherford talked about rebuild or not rebuild, but thinking towards next year that we're going to be at that point soon, 
I don't believe they're at that point now. Now, if this continues in a month, I can see that part of it ticking in that, look, let's just leave it the way it is and let it fall apart and get, you know, get our guy at the end of the year, get the best possible pick and kind of work from there. But I, I struggle to think those are the reasons right now, because I'll tell you, Rutherford's comments, and you and I both talked to Jim personally on this topic, and I've always felt that Rutherford wants Boudreaux to succeed. Uh, yesterday's interview was the first time I really felt that he was done with him, that he was ready to move on from him. You know, talking to him personally, like certainly you got the vibe that Alvin and Boudreaux weren't necessarily on the same page. There's no relationship there. But I, I felt like Rutherford was actually trying to facilitate a better relationship between the two of them because he thought Bruce had it in him to be good and that they wanted to support him with some of the coaches that they did this offseason, right? Yes, they like Yo. Yes, they like Colleton. You know, um, they, they brought in pieces to provide support, including the Sedins, who now have a bit of an on-ice role. And that was collectively decided, but it was done because they wanted to set up Bruce for success. They wanted to set up the players for success. So I didn't get the sense that Rutherford, this was the first time in an interview, even though he has resisted giving him the vote of confidence previously, the commentary, the repeated commentary this time made me think that Jim is done too. So what's the tipping point? Do they get to a point where they're like, okay, we got to fire him? Or like you say, at that point, 10 more games, whatever it happens to be at that point, maybe they do think, look, let's not take a chance on getting a bit of a bounce and losing some draft position. But right now, I don't think they're there yet where they're thinking about next year's draft. No, not yet. Not and yet. I, and, I and, just, this, and I just can't believe money's the reason, only because I don't believe if they fire him, they're going to go out and pay somebody. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with any of your logic there. And, and I think you're right in terms of the overall feeling that management has regarding Bruce. Like, I, I, I do think that what we're seeing is an outcropping of frustration as a result of the club's persistent defensive issues in particular, right? I, I think that's just how it is. I, I think that's grown as a source of frustration in part because there was hope that in a collaborative environment, things would be different this year. And it's looked an awful lot like uh, the Canucks looked last season with the exception that, you know, the goaltending hasn't bailed them out. Um, on the New Jersey Devils front, you know, one thing to note is that 2017 they draft Nico Heischer and they from but it's 2019 2019 they hire uh, a guy named Tyler Dello former athletic contributor um you know management changes from Shero to Tom Fitzgerald Fitzgerald launches a pretty significant sell-off the team flirts with hiring John Chaka, but doesn't. And for a while there, it felt like Tom Fitzgerald was sort of on the outs. But I think his work was good enough uh, on the selling front. And once the Chaka, LaFaire Chaka sort of blew up, uh, they ended up sticking with Tom Fitzgerald. That looks like a, a good call, a very good decision. And I think they've been very careful. One thing in particular they've done really well is avoiding the big free agent mistake, right? They, they just, they've eschewed um, the bad contract, you know, and, and that's not to say they haven't gone shopping, right? They, they brought in Thomas Tatar. They brought in Dougie Hamilton. 
Um, they traded for Andreas Janssen, which hasn't really worked. But for the most part, they've viewed sinking a lot of money into bad deals, and that kept them flexible to rebuild a blue line very fast, very quickly. And, you know, I, I suspect uh, if you go back in the athletic archives, go back in the athletic archives and um, look at, like, Dello's work on why teams that aren't contenders should avoid July 1st, and honestly, maybe contenders should too. And cross-reference it with the devil's actions over the last four years. It's uncanny. So here's the thing about a lot of these teams. A lot of these teams on the come up, right? The Columbus Blue Jackets have sagged massively, but they've also brought in a ton of future-oriented talent. And I don't think they're doing, I don't think they're upset to be in the mix for Bedard (laughs) this year. I don't think they're going to be regretting that by any means, based on their overall positioning, despite the money that they spent on the likes of Goudreau and Goodbranson. Um, you know, they brought in Cam Lawrence, right? Buffalo, Buffalo with the quick turnaround. It's only been two and a half years, basically, since they brought in Sam Ventura and Jason Carmanos, right? You look at Carolina as an obvious example with Eric Tulski. You look at the Devils with Tyler Dello. I mean, these are high intellectual horsepower hockey people. And I think the impact in an organization where they're really empowered uh, shows up, shows, shows up quickly, surprisingly quickly. Um, That's the game. Now there are real sharps at the table and, you know, I, I think you need that. I think you need that to stay, to keep pace these days with the way some of these, you know, really sharp organizations are, are beginning to run themselves and the discipline with which, they stick to and develop creative plans and are comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity and navigating that and use it to create value for themselves. So, you know, relatively fast. Now, uh, I think that's a big part of, of why you've seen the devils behave the way they've behaved. All right. Conrad. Tell me, tell me what you, tell me what you think of Ottawa in their process, because for the, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been sorry, talking sorry. about the high end, Go ahead. Farron, I've already invited Conrado up to the stage. Okay, I apologize. Right, my, we'll, no, okay. we'll come back. We'll come back to your point. Uh, Conrado, welcome to the stage. Where Yo. would you like to take this conversation? Uh, hey guys. Um, I know we've been kind of like beating this on a dead horse, but, um, <laughs> kind of keeping it on the Rutherford and, uh, Boudreau talk, but I was just like wondering, like, in your experience, like, have you ever seen any instances where you can recall where, like, a GM or a president of hockey ops is just, like, throwing this many stones or darts at, at their head coach and just, like, over, I guess, since it would have been since the end of the last season, too, because he's with some of the press conferences. And um, is it just, like, a product that FA brought him on before before Rutherford was brought on? and if that was the case, I was just wondering, it's like, why would, why would Rutherford have like given, given the blessing, quote unquote, if, uh, if he was just going to be doing this the whole time with, uh, with Boudreaux and kind of just yanking his chain all the time. Thanks guys. Conrado. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Farhan, can I give that to you first? Uh, no, you go ahead. Well, the only time that I can remember it happening and it happened in Vancouver was Mike Gillis, right? The the My Way or the Highway radio availability that he did on, it was then called the Team 1040, four days before he got fired. Do you remember that? 
I, I, you know what? I don't remember the my way or the highway line. Well, I don't know if the, that's, I just remember it that way, but Mike Gillis, um, basically put out an ultimatum that it was going to be oh, you know, his yeah, way. Yeah. 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 He John Tur- that, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it was, uh, it, well, it was don't, but it was, um, you know, I really feel over the last couple of seasons, Gillis said that we chased goalposts that have been moving and got away from our core principles of how I want this team to play, how we want to perform and the tempo we want to play with. People love to pick someone to blame, but the reality is, as an organization, we've deviated from some of the things that made us successful and some of the things that I know will be successful. We're going to get back to those levels, get back to the style of play that we started six years ago. We have the personnel to do it. We just have to be committed and have the guts to carry it out. Um, he added toward the end, uh, you know, that uh, that if anyone wasn't on board with that, they'd be gone. And so, you know, I, I, that's the only other time I can remember anything like this was, was, you know, Gillis saying we've got away from our style of play and I don't think it's going to work and we need to get back to what works. Um, that would be the closest analogy to me. You can draw whatever line you'd like uh, from this situation to that situation based on, you know, the <laughs> uh, skepticism that's been in the market for years about who exactly hired both coaches. But can you can you possibly think of an organization that has been less aligned in the last decade than this one? No. You know, like it appeared aligned in 2011. Very quickly, things changed. Right. Um the more ownership gets involved, um, you know, th- there's a different agenda there between them and anybody else that might be thinking about a reasonable rebuild. We thought finally the worm had turned, right? Like there was such a backlash on ownership when Trevor Linden got brought in, right? That to the point where he basically had to bring in the most popular Canuck in history to save the brand. And, you know, because ownership was taking such a beating and they lived with it for a couple of years and then they got off that train. And then we've been dealing with what is the Jim Benning era in Vancouver. And then again, the brand got so beaten and fans got so fed up and ownership got such an ass kicking that they then went out and made a massive change. They finally got rid of Jim to restore consumer confidence and brought in Jim Rutherford. But again, the order of things and the timing almost from minute one has been awkward. Now we felt a certain level of um, reassurance this off season. First of all, just the fact that they would bring in Jim Rutherford and hire a president, because initially you'll recall that when Benning got fired and Green got fired and the interim was Stan Smeal, there was no commitment on the part of ownership at that point to hire a president. When they did hire a president, that was a reassuring thing that it was a guy like Jim Rutherford. Jim wasn't going to come for anything. He was at a stage in his career where he could call his shot. And then in the offseason, you allow them to build out a, a beefy, meaningful organization, you know, that um, puts more effort and emphasis into various areas of development and, and what have you that they weren't doing before, that they were oper- operating on more of a shoestring budget previously. But once they've done that, like it's all still felt unaligned because in all of that, we were never sure if the GM and coach were on the same page. We were never really sure what the plan was and whether or not it was actually going to be a rebuild. But then nobody ever said it was going to be a rebuild. They thought they could get it done in a couple of years. But then the moves that have been made 
are contradictory, much like they were when we thought they were going to get younger and signed Louis Erickson. And it's it's just felt unaligned and awkward all the way through. You know, and as a result, you know, then take that and throw in all the other stuff that we see behind the scenes as members of the media in the building, you know, and we see the scenes, right? And as the organization top to bottom, I said this last night in response to a Don Taylor question, has the organization ever been less likable? And you can't find one person to dislike. Like none of us really feel like we know Patrick Alveen. We respect the resume of Jim Rutherford. Everybody loves Bruce. Every, you know, everybody loves Bo Horvat. You know, JT Miller, you know, kind of hits and misses with people. We all understand the value of Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes. Thatcher Demko's gotten a little bit, you know, he's not as warm and fuzzy as he was a, a year or two ago. So there's not one guy to dislike, but collectively, when you put all of it together, has this organization ever been less likable? Um, and I know I've gone way. Sorry, I'm yeah. So digressed and the, gone on the, the tangent. The answer but it with the Mike Gillis comments. The answer is yes. The Messier Keenan era. For me, and that's what I said. That it hasn't been like that since Messier Keenan. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to top that. <laughs> no, it's not. It, it, it's impossible. That's the gold standard but, for unlikability. But that's where we're at. Like we're 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 now in second place. Uh, yeah. I mean. I, yeah, uh, I, look, I, at some point, at some point, I think this team needs to prove that they're even capable of selling hope. You know, I, I think the, after the bubble, Certainly, despite the way that that offseason unfolded, people got on board with the Nate Schmidt trade, right? But that team was brutal, like brutal. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember like the Jace Howerluck, Louis Erickson, Jake Vertanen, Jace, uh, sorry, uh, Mark Michaelis, Adam Gaudet Canucks with Brogan Rafferty on the third pair. But it was not pretty. Like that team was really outmatched most nights. And then, you know, everything else happened. Yeah, but we're not then, talking about just a bad team, though, right? Like, we're talking about... No, no, no. We're just, talking about compounding errors. Compounding errors. And I also do think, like, you know, I was in Florida with a really talented core. And I think after the way that they changed direction after the playoffs and brought in Tom Rowe and replaced Gerard Glant unceremoniously, like, I think it took a while. And ultimately, I think it took a change of leadership before players were properly invested again in the success of the organization. Like, I think it left such a bad, it felt like a betrayal and it took a while for that organization to repair its relationship with the room. And, and I'm not convinced that this team hasn't gone through something pretty similar, right? Like when, when Stan Smeal talks about finger pointing last year, you know, I, I kind of got the sense that that's kind of what he was implying that, you know, at some point, if you don't trust the powers that be as players to do the right thing, it it's hard to pull in the same direction as a group. And and I sort of wonder how much that hangover sort of still lingers in, in terms of shaping what we see as culture issues within within the team. 
culture issues, which by the way, Bo Horvat said today, he takes personally, right? Like he takes that personally as the captain. He doesn't believe that that's the case. And he's eager for this team to show people that that's not the case. And hey, what, they've got points in four or five now, right? They've got, um, they've, they've played materially better. Uh, they didn't tonight, but until tonight, they were on a nice sort of run of, of playing some better hockey five on five. Uh, we'll see where it goes. You know, they, they have Montreal tomorrow and then things get really tough. We're, we're going to know a lot more about this team um, by American Thanksgiving. And then we'll know a lot more about them and probably know really what their true talent level is by the first week of December. So, um, you know, right now, I think it's trending in a direction that if you want to see the positives, I think you have grounds for it. If you want to see the downside, I think you have grounds for it. And yet the overall picture for me is, is, you know, is this team good enough? Is this team good enough to not even not even do anything meaningful in terms of being a contending team, but just to at least convince fans to buy back in the way they sort of did after that big win streak in December and the first little bit of the Boudreaux bump like that? Are they even at the level where they'll be able to convince fans that this is worth investing in? emotionally over the latter half of the season, uh, you know, that we'll know for sure in the next 10 days. And eh, I'm, I, I'm not sold. I need to see more before I'll say, yeah, I think they're at least, I think they're at least capable of that. Really uh, low bar, by the way. No, no, fair enough. But like, meanwhile, um, like Bo Horvat is really, really doing everything he can to put this team on his back. Like this is the best of Bo. He, uh, you know, and we saw great things from him late last season. He's been outstanding. And is ownership wavering at all? Is this putting, like, I know Jim said, hey, good. Well, you know, we still want to sign him. But if we don't, we're going to get something pretty good for him with the way he's playing right now. Are they wavering at all? On, on Bo? I don't think they are yet, no. But I wonder if it'll come if he keeps carrying himself this well. And playing this well. I mean, it's impossible like, to not be super impressed with what he's done. Absolutely. And even even Jim himself said, I'm proud of him, right? Like, the fact that he's not let this distract him on any level, the fact that he's, you know, we, we use the term, you know, dragging the team into the fight. And, like, that's the captain. Last year, we quibbled all the time about who the true leader of this team was. And the fact that the club signed JT first was an indication that they had staked their flag in the ground and JT Miller was their guy. They believed he was the true, you know, and, and I don't know that it went that far, but you know, that was certainly viewed as the the judge and jury uh, in that particular debate. Who's the leader of this team now? And I know this is going to ebb and flow, but there is absolutely no disputing the fact that number 53 is the man right now. Well, yeah. And I mean, there's nothing more you can ask from a guy. You know, there's there's a way of tuning out this market. There's a way of staying focused on the task at hand. There's a way of engaging that, you know, it's impossible. Like, even I'm impressed. Even even, I'm impressed. The, the truth is, the, the the contract is hanging over him. We haven't been asking him about it daily. I asked like, him it, about it, it tonight. Um, yeah, but it, like now in the positive light, right? That how have you been able to hold the distraction as opposed to what could have been the other way had he been struggling? Because we well, and that we're still going to have that. We're still going to have the Bo Horvat has one goal in 10 games. Like that's the nature of goal scoring. Yeah, for sure. You know, like we're still going to have that. 
there are many peaks and valleys ahead. The thing is, is you have no doubt about how Horvat's going to manage it. Like, that's sort of what makes him so impressive. You know that he's going to say the right thing and do the right thing and be the closest thing this team has to a golden mean guy. And, you know, to have the uncertainty surrounding his status, considering what we think this team's issues are, you know, it's far from ideal. And on the topic of, and on the topic of likability, by far the most likable person in the building, not named Sadin. Yeah, I don't disagree with that either. Let's, uh, Oh, you want to talk Ottawa, uh, the Ottawa approach. Um, I don't think Ottawa has the intellectual horsepower. I mean, other That's teams fair. were going yeah. out. Other teams were going out and uh, and hiring, you know, these these super nerds with outrageous real world qualifications, right? Um, you know, professors and um, microbiologists and lawyers and people who really understood the game and the cap and uh, regression and analytics and how to mine value and has spent a bunch of time having their work tested in public. And the Ottawa Senators brought in Pierre Maguire. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what else to tell you, right? Like, hot Pierre Summer, they acquired a guy who's got two goals and uh, to this point and has a $9 million qualifying offer. I mean, if Dabrinkit doesn't get to 30, and I think he'll get to 30. I actually thought he was really good tonight. But if he doesn't get to 30, can you qualify him at $9 million? $9 million. Uh, Yeah. Scary. $9 million, Farhan. That's a scary number. I mean, everyone was like, wow, what a rinse for the, for the Blackhawks. And I was sitting there like, does, do no one, does no one understand the risk that Ottawa just took taking a guy away from Patrick Kane and just trusting that he'll be worth $9 million a year from now? You know, you can't, you can't qualify him if he doesn't hit 30, at least, at least, right? Like his, I hate bets where you're betting on the guy's floor. You know, like, like the floor that DeBrinkett had to hit was to repeat being a top six goal scorer in the NHL to just be worth his QO. Like, that's a bet with no upside. And the Ottawa Senators paid handsomely to do it. Like, why do you think the Blackhawks rushed to trade a 25-year-old at the outset of their rebuild? It was the contract structure. They wanted to avoid being in the type of situation that the Canucks found themselves in with Brock Besser this last year where you can't even qualify the guy. You have to negotiate a deal that's, you know, more, more player friendly than you'd like ahead of having to tie yourself up or tie yourself to an arbitration process. Um, anyway, I, I, I didn't love the Ottawa senators off season. I thought it was vastly overrated. I was fading them before the season. Um, no, but a year, a year ago before like pre McGuire hire, like we, and I'm not going to get over that. Like, that's so funny. They brought in all these nerds and all this intellectual horsepower and the Ottawa Senators brought in Pierre Maguire. But, but that um, tells you everything. That tells you everything. No, no, and I, I hear you. But, I, you know, when we were talking about the Sens in COVID, um, you know, you had talked about, you know, I remember sitting in the empty building upstairs when we had the nice setup there with the fireplace and everything. And you talking about these guys have got some young, fast, talented players. This is a team that's going to be in really good shape in a couple of years. And then, you know, they're, they're making the hard decisions and they're, they're dealing with the painful times now. And look at their prospect pool compared to what Vancouver's got and, you know, all of that. Yeah. But there is kind of a point there where you've got to turn that into more than just bad players ripening. Well, and I wonder, I, I mean, first of all, the ownership thing has to play itself out first, but I sort of wonder if they're in that. Um, Ryan Reynolds, for real. Like, did you, did yeah. you see him like fake applauding? Like he was, he was so applauding good. and he was kind of into it, but it looked so awkward. 
when he was cheering for the Sens. <laughs> it was kind yeah. of that half smile, like, yay. <laughs> yeah. And, One of his favorite oh players, God. Dan Smeals, in the building representing the other team. Um, but uh, but the, the thing about the Sens and the ownership thing, I wonder if they're sort of in that Dave Nonis moment, you know, where they've got talent, the building blocks are there, and I actually think we're seeing it play out in terms of the process. Like, I, I have a lot of time for DJ. Um, the, the, their head coach, I think they do a lot of fun, aggressive stuff. Um, you know, I, I think they play an interesting way. Uh, I actually think they're better than I expected. Like I, I, you know, I don't mean to take a victory lap. I was fading the senators and I really was not as high on their off season as the public, but I actually have been more impressed by their play than I expected to be. I'm not trying to have this both ways. I'm just trying to make a nuanced point here. And yet you know, I, the blue line still needs a lot of work, right? Like J- Sanderson needs to be on your third pair. Um, I, you know, I, I think the blue line needs a lot of work. I wonder if they're in that Dave Nonis moment where, you know, they've done a good job accumulating for the most part, but they're bumping up against some complex negotiations, some complex moments. And you sort of wonder if uh, they may end up needing new leadership to finish the job. Uh, and that probably won't come until there's new ownership. But, um, you know, I, I certainly think they could use a, a bit of a more progressive approach in terms of their overall team assembly um, if they're going to hit the sort of New Jersey Devils level um, in the in the next year or two. All right. Rohan is the last question we're going to take. And this this is this will be it. We've gone an hour. We've had a lot of fun. We always do with the VIPs. But let's uh, invite Rohan up to the stage. Um, hopefully it'll resolve shortly. Rohan, how are you? Rohan, do we have you? My guy. Hello. Hey, there we go. How are there you? We go. Good. Um, I had two questions. Uh, the first mm. one would be, uh, Jack Rathbone. So Dermot's going to be healthy this week, presumably. Um, do you think it's more likely that he ends up with a trade because his agent probably doesn't want him back in the HL and maybe he doesn't want to be there either? Or do you think he just gets sent down and this keeps festering? And then the second question would be, um, do you both not think that the organization has kind of essentially set Bruce up for failure a bit? Because at the start of or before training camp, they had Dory um, reassigned into a position where she would be the point of liaison for the analytics department um, to kind to kind of get Bruce more on board with analytics. But then she goes for whichever reasons, but then they don't really replace that role. So I'm curious mm. if like, that's like an organizational failure to not replace her as soon as she goes. So yeah, those are the two questions. Thanks for on. Um, you know, I like the idea of having, uh, an analytics person embedded with the coaching staff, if you can, if if the coaches are open minded to it, um, you know, I think it depends. Like, I don't think it's necessary. I don't I don't know that the Carolina Hurricanes have that, for example. And yet, you know, they know exactly how they want to play. Rod Brendamore is consistent in how he wants to play. They know how to identify the Jalen Chatfields of the world who can be more for them than they are for anyone else. Um, and so it works, even if. You know, I, I don't I don't get the sense that Brindamore is looking at a spreadsheet <laughs> as part of his pre-scouting. I think Brindamore is basing his decisions on hockey knowledge and is working with the players he has. And the players he has are for sure 
being found in part by, you know, uh, an understanding of arbitrage and value and asset management and yes, analytics too. And so, you know, again, I don't know that it's crucial to have that, um, to have a, I don't know that it's crucial to have an analytics person um, embedded with the coaching staff. I think there are teams that are maybe, maybe we'll move to that uh, eventually, but it's not a very common thing around the league. Like it was sort of an interesting thing that the Canucks were trying and obviously didn't end up actually trying it. Um, What was Rohan's first question? Jack Rathbone. Um, Well, just for, well, he also just said if Bruce is being set up to fail and, you know, you can certainly make that case based on the inability to improve the blue line prior to the season, but I don't think that was done with the intent of setting Bruce up to fail. It was just failure on their own part, period. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'd like to, do I think Bruce Brudro has the horses? I don't. Right. Do I think this team has the horses? I don't. Right. I was fading them as a playoff team before the season. I'm still fading them as a playoff team, but I also don't think they're as bad as, you know, being beneath the Arizona Coyotes by point percentage the way they were entering tonight's run of games. So, you know, I still think this team's fat part of the bell curve is 85 to low 90s in point totals. Uh, even with the slow start, I suspect there's going to be entire months, you know, stretches of 10 games where they win eight. And that's going to be interesting because how much do we buy those results when they come? If they play a bunch of games that look like the one tonight, but win them, you know, is that going to be enough? Based on Rutherford's commentary, I don't know that it is. And especially because there's proof of concept in that clearly the team didn't buy into 57 games of really impressive results last year. Um, And that sort of poses the issue. Like if this team's ceiling is a bubble playoff team, if the worst possible outcome is to finish with like 87 points, which I think they're probably, you know, on a collision course with, um, you know, how do you avoid that? What, What moves are necessary to make now? That, to me, is the tension that, that gets interesting. Like, why does the team have to lose for you to, you know, lose out on this road trip, for example, or play a certain way on this road trip for you to come to that conclusion, right? It sounds like hockey operations has already kind of made up their mind, a little bit at least. Um, I suppose they're still hopeful. I know they're still hopeful that things will turn around, but, um, you know, is form enough? Is form enough, or can the results change their mind? That, to me, is sort of the tension that I'm going to be interested in monitoring, especially because I do think this Canucks team is likely to pick up more wins than they have in the first 13. Let's uh, look ahead to tomorrow in Montreal. Montreal is playing Detroit tonight, or is it Toronto playing Detroit before they play Vancouver? No, no. um, Montreal played Detroit tonight, and they won in a a shootout. So they went the full 65. Um, so both teams, it's like a road back-to-back for both teams, although the Montreal Canadiens are home. So the Canucks will be playing a back-to-back, which isn't easy, uh, but so so will their opponents. So it's not a rested versus a tired game, um, not a schedule loss. It's two tired teams. And, you know, Montreal works hard. Like, at the end of the day, Montreal works hard. They're not very good. They're super limited. They profile on the back end like a team that the Canucks should be able to get the best of in that they don't move north-south too quickly for the Canucks to keep up with. And, you know, they have a dangerous top line with Suzuki and Caulfield. They can definitely do damage, but the Canucks should be favored in that game. I would expect Vegas to favor the Canucks in that game. Not by a lot, but by a bit. Uh, at the very least, it'll be a pick And look, if the Canucks can win that, you go on a hockey night in Canada and Toronto, 
uh, riding at least somewhat high. Will be a, be a welcome relief, I'm sure, for most Canucks fans. And Toronto plays the night before, and it sounds like Vancouver might get their backup goalie making his NHL debut. Oh, really? Wow. The Petruzzi kid? Yeah. We talked Damn. about it yesterday with Harmon. Nice um, break. Yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah, I mean that's a that would be a that would be a favorable bounce for the Canucks. So uh, we'll definitely be interesting to see how this week unfolds and how the rest of this trip unfolds. You know, I, I think this week's crucial because Toronto. I mean, they're the tired team. That's a winnable game. Uh, Toronto's played really well the last the last few, um, but I don't think they're an elite team right now. Like I don't I don't know. Lilligren helps a lot, a lot, but I don't know if they have the speed on the back end to be uh, elite anymore. And, uh, like, I almost wonder if they're going to need to revamp that blue line a little more significantly before they're as good as they have been for most of the last five years, despite the lack of playoff success. I'm not as high on the Leafs as I have been in recent years, based on wow. what I've seen through the first 13. So, Hang on. Um, on that note, we and that note, we need to end the show. Okay, we'll end the show there. Just, I just think because that, that's got to be the ultimate final word right there. <laughs> well, enjoy it. Right and uh, high on the Leafs as he has been in past years. Right. No, I, I just think they're slow on the back end. They don't profile like a team that Vancouver should have trouble with anymore. And sorry, like I, th- there are games where where the Canucks come in and the t- other team is so fast that I'm like, oh man, they're they're dead in the water. And uh, and Toronto's not one of those opponents anymore. They, they they're still better, but I don't I don't know that I view them that way. Uh, although Lilligren's uh, insertion in the lineup helps a ton on that score. All right, let's leave it there. Nice chatting with the VIPs. Uh, a good discussion. Thank you for joining us. We'll uh, we'll do it again later this month. Yeah, this is going to get posted as well on uh, on the athletic uh, platform. So make sure you, uh, if you miss part of it and you want to get on it, uh, please do so because it'll be up for a while here for the rest of the week, at least until Harm and I get back together next Monday for our regular van cast, and then we'll do this again in a couple of weeks. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.